Hey everyone, Gil Gross here, and it is time for another mailbag where I answer your observations, your questions, your concerns, and ultimately your comments on tennis and other things I've posted on both the YouTube community tab and my Twitter, at Gil underscore Gross, and uh, there's a lot of super interesting comments, many about Indian Wells, many not about Indian Wells, which I, which I appreciate, you know, I, I like it when there is some out-of-the-box, out-of-left-field, perhaps, questions. I enjoy that. So uh, excited to get going. After this, shout-out to Player Court, the place to go if you are looking for a local coach, practice partner, or match. The number one reason people quit tennis is because they can't find anyone to play with, and I don't want that to happen to you, so I've arranged a special discount, 50% off, with the link in the description, www.playercourt.com backslash Gil Gross. First comment, and we're going to see a mix of uh, Twitter and YouTube comment, uh, but the first comment is from member Nicholas. You mentioned the conflict in Ukraine possibly having an effect on the performances of Russian-born players. I imagine we might see occasional shouts or booing from the crowds at Indian Wells, and likely more as the tour heads over to Europe in April. Will they be able to stay match-focused? Also, prominent voices have been raised for the ATP and WTA to follow the example of several other global sports associations and ban Russians from all international play. While not individually responsible for the war, they do represent the actions and values of their country. It might not be fair, but in an unprecedented situation like this, it is only the right thing to do. What is your take? This is a, this is a very important question, and I guess we're, we're starting off heavy here on the mailbag. But yeah, very, very crucial issue that I, um, I'm happy that someone asked me about, actually. So... My original, or I shouldn't say original because it, it stands to this day, my instinct whenever there's a situation like this is I put myself in the shoes of a Russian athlete. And I can tell you unequivocally, I would never want to be sanctioned, punished, judged for the actions of my government. And I think whatever your political views are, whatever party you align with, you probably don't want as an individual to be held accountable for the actions of your government. And I don't think ordinary Russian citizens, regardless of if they're famous athletes or if they are restaurant owners, should be held accountable for the actions of Vladimir Putin and the Russian autocracy. Now, unfortunately, some collateral damage is unavoidable. For example, there have been many sanctions on the Russian economy and Russian businesses. I think one of the most hard-hitting consequences that ordinary Russian citizens are feeling right now is the credit card companies no longer operating in Russia. I believe a lot of cash transfer companies are no longer operating in Russia, which is making it really hard for Russians to do simple things like pay for stuff. There is a real effect of something like that. And if you are aligned with supporting Ukraine, a sovereign nation who is being attacked unprovoked with no ulterior motive other than territorial gain, which is how, you know, my from my information sources, that is in simple terms what's happened here. If your information sources are telling you different, we're never going to to get to a place where we can have a conversation. But my information sources suggest this is an unprovoked attack on a sovereign nation for territorial gain. Uh, if you are aligning yourself with supporting Ukraine, then part of that is choking the Russian economy and inconveniencing the Russian public, perhaps, to a point where they are not supporting the very people who are making 
the decision to carry out this war. So creating unrest or disloyalty, creating those those large inconvenience, that actually does help in the war effort. That makes a difference. So here's where I draw the distinction here. If you're following me on this kind of, I, I know it's convoluted. Banning Russians from Indian wells, that's, that's a lot different. That to me, if you're doing a kind of, not a risk reward, but like a upside downside balance, that's way tilted towards downside where you're punishing ordinary Russian citizens and it's not going to help the war effort. It's not helping Ukraine. It's just not. It might be a, are you sending a message into the world if you're doing something like that? Yes. But is there any tangible effect? No. Whereas, do I think the banks not operating in Russia, does that have a tangible effect on the war effort? I would argue yes. ATP and WTA banning Russians from playing? I'm sorry, no. That's not going to... That is not... And I understand, I totally understand Putin's connection with sports and athletics, how much that means to him. But it is not going to help Ukraine if Medvedev can't play Indian Wells. And it would be... So I guess I separated this into two places. My personal feelings, which is... Any time an ordinary Russian citizen is punished for the actions of their government, I feel bad and I don't want that. However, some of that is unavoidable and necessary. So that's the judgment that needs to be made. Not uh, When it comes to tennis events, I, I am against, against banning Russian athletes because I don't think, I think it... I don't think it makes a difference, enough of a difference to justify the unfortunate act that is inconveniencing ordinary Russian citizens for, for things their government did, um, if that makes sense. I don't know how the crowd's going to be, by the way. I, I'm not sure if, if Russians are going to face a lot of adverse uh, crowd treatment. That's yet to be seen, but certainly that will not help. Um, I will say... You know, if you look at a guy like Andrei Rublev, I'll move on from this. Don't worry, but I'm, I'm not done quite yet. If you look at a guy like Andrei Rublev, first of all, who's been vocal against the war, wrote it on the camera lens in the opening days of the invasion. Think about it. You're also deplatforming players who can actually use that platform for, for supportive messages, supportive messages of Ukraine. Are there players, are there Russian players who support the invasion? Maybe. Marta Kostyuk, a teenage Ukrainian on the WTA tour, very promising young talent, by the way. She said the other day that she's been disappointed with her colleagues and that most, and that, you know, Russian players have not been outwardly apologetic or sympathetic is what I should say. And that's disappointing to hear. But uh, yeah, ultimately, I cannot support a ban of, of Russian tennis players. I can support I can support punishing ordinary Russian citizens as unfortunate as it is in cases where it's going to make a real difference in supporting Ukraine's defense against the Russian attack and banning tennis players doesn't fall under that. All right, let's move on. Swagat Carr says, do you think it's actually a big two era since a few years and not a big three one? Okay. Do you think it's actually been a big two era for a few years and not a big three one like the media keeps referring to? Novak and Rafa have won 13 of the last 15 slams, none for Fed, despite them both being in their 30s. That's still crazy. Oh, my God. Uh, even though, like, I know that, just reading it and saying it is another thing. Okay, Swagat continues. Rafole have also won more slams post-30 than Fed and have been more consistent despite them being five to six years younger than Federer and much more physical slash defensive players. What do you think of this fact, which is quite contradictory and rarely discussed? Do you think this disproves the notion that style and attacking tennis ages much better than offense? 
Federer also hasn't been year number one since 2009, is the only one of the big three not to have the... I'm not sure what that is now, and is trailing in the slam race and also weeks in number one race to Rafa and Novak, respectively. Do you think it's fair to call this the big two era? With all due respect to Federer and his achievements, it's still a big three, as in three best players ever, but it's a big two era, in my opinion. There are a couple of questions in there. Also, are are, are you sure does Nadal... Does Nadal have more weeks at number one than Federer? I thought Federer still had that, but I could be wrong. Anyway, um, I'm glad, I'm also glad that that this comment is in here because it's been on my mind. It's been on my mind because when Medvedev became number one, a lot of people were, including myself, by the way, was framing this statistic that he's the first person to become number one in the big four era, right? And I say big four because Murray's been number one. And then you get, it's not a big four. What about Stan? And I say, no, Stan was not on par with Andy. In 95% of metrics, Stan was not on par with Andy. It's just, they both have the same number of slams. That is the only thing. But then it's, well, still, Murray's not even close to as good as Federer, Nadal, and Djokovic. And that is true. That is so undeniably true. But there are still contexts in which the term Big Four is both an effective and accurate term. If you are saying the sentence, well, world number one has been locked down by the Big Four for the last or no one outside of the big four has been world number one for the last 15 years. That statement perfectly conveys what you're trying to say. Everybody knows exactly what I'm talking about, exactly who I'm talking about. So does it really matter that Murray was not as good on the same tier as the other three? Now, you can talk about other things. Who has dominated slams for the last 15 years? The big three, or sorry, the last 20 years, the big three. If you narrow the scope to the era, era, uh, and you know this is too small in my opinion to be considered an era. If you narrow the scope for you know post Federer's Wimbledon 2018, then yes, it it has been statistically a big two. However, uh, again, I think we need to. My main point here is we need to be less. <clears throat> We need to be more elastic about these this terminology. We need to use it in a way. We need to stop. It is not binary. There is not, it's not, there's no big four. There's never been such thing as big four. No, because Murray was way better than anyone else for a very long time. So it was Murray, Federer, Nadal, Djokovic. There was a big four. There was simultaneously a big three. They're different things. They're separate. They coexisted. It was clearly Federer, Nadal, Djokovic, tier of their own. Murray, tier of his own. Everybody else, tier of their own. Now, Federer maybe wasn't on par, con- uh, depending on what era uh, or, or what time stretch you want to use. There are times where Nadal and Djokovic in the 2010s were more successful than Federer, but Again, I think if you zoom out, which is what I think we do here when we refer to the big three, I think it's a big three. Like, um, I don't think from a terminology perspective, we need to be less rigid. We do. Um, Because big two isn't a thing at the moment. And in order for it to become a thing it would need to be that way for a very long time. I think big three is a thing. I don't think it needs to be scrutinized as in like all the players in the big three at all moments in time must be equal. I think it's okay if it's a big three and Federer has trailed off. I think it can still be the big three. Um, But I think in recent years, I have shifted my terminology. I have, and I think you have had to, which is that Nadal and Djokovic have 
reigned supreme in the last couple of years. And I don't think uh, I don't think we need to start xing out big three as a term and never say it. Uh, we just need to use it correctly. Same with big four. You can say it. It's not a curse word. It it was a thing. You just got to use it correctly and, and accurately and in the right contexts. From Fern, seeing as Novak has had an extended offseason and will be super fresh. I didn't think this was the third comment that I put, uh, but I, I'll answer it now. Um, will be super fresh. Do you see him ripping through everyone in Paris and Wimbledon, motivated to show he's still the best? Or do you think this will have impacted him mentally and he'll take time to cover, recover? I'm going to go with neither. It doesn't help to not play matches. It just, it does not help tennis players to not play tennis matches. And that is a universal statement about any player, regardless of level. So I don't necessarily think that this whole thing is going to impact him mentally. I think, however, there will be some consequences about um, that have to do with not so much this whole saga getting in his head, but just a lack of match play and the negative consequences that come with a lack of match play for all tennis players always. Nothing to do with vaccines or or regulations or media coverage or anything. All that completely irrelevant. I just think it does help a player to get in a rhythm and play a lot of matches. That should be true about Novak as well. This one from Parth. This was the top-liked comment on YouTube. Hi, Gil. I remember you saying that you are not a passionate fan of any particular player anymore. If you had a chance to go back knowing this, would you still choose to analyze games like you are doing today? Also, has your enjoyment actually reduced because of what you do? And would you say that this is inevitably the next step in a tennis fan's journey? No, I would never change anything about about this. Not at all. I'm super grateful for this. I... Uh, First of all, it has, and no, it's made it's made me enjoy the sport even more. Just because I'm not riding through the emotional highs and lows of any particular player's wins and losses, first of all, does not mean that I don't get the same rush from watching an epic match. That I don't get, that I don't feel adrenaline, that I don't, that my heart doesn't start racing, that I don't feel the weight of the moment. And yes, having a rooting interest definitely helps enhance that effect, which is an effect that I think most sports fans love. But I also enjoy engaging with this sport intellectually. I enjoy learning about this game, which not only do I do I get from doing everything that I did before I started this YouTube channel, but also doing things like these mailbags even help me learn about the game. What are you guys thinking? What are your takes on stuff? So uh, that's incredibly rewarding. And obviously, you know, this is what I've always wanted to do since I was a kid, actually. I didn't know that I was going to have a, a, a podcast and a YouTube channel where I was going to talk about tennis. But I did know that I wanted to talk about sports and that's what I wanted my life to be and I wanted to broadcast. So, I mean, this is this is exactly what I've always wanted to do and and um, I would I would not change anything and I don't think my enjoyment has reduced. But as for the last part of the question, which is, do you think that this is the next step in a tennis fan's journey? No, I don't. I don't think it has to be. And I think that whatever kind of fan you are, that's okay. Uh, however you engage with the sport, that's okay. And if you don't engage with it in the manner that I sometimes do and have to for, for the job, if you are not always laser focused on what tactics are playing out in the match or what a uh, player's strengths and weaknesses are, that is okay. Uh, and and the, the sport shall welcome you uh, with open arms um, as it would anything else. Um, there is a comment that I wanted to answer closer to the top because I wanted to address it. So let me just try to find that real quick. 
Here it is. Yeah, I wanted to address this. It's one of the bigger topics in the last couple of days. So uh, Tao asked me, what do you think about Novak staying in the draw? Is it to maybe stack one side with higher seeds or am I going too deep with that? Because I don't see what he gets out of leaving his name in there when he knows he won't be able to play. So I have, I have critiqued the sequence of events here in a way. Um, I did it on three. I did it on my preview. I did it on Twitter. I thought that there were a couple things going on here that in, in one way, I think Djokovic had the perfect strategy that I think was the logical way to go about things, which is to wait until the very last moment. The way COVID is fluid, the way regulations are changing all the time, and the fact that there's no point in withdrawing too early because it really doesn't have an effect on anything until they start playing qualies. And then then your presence in the draw uh, and on the entry list actually changes some things. But until then, there's no consequence to just keeping your options open. Now, not only did the qualies start and I, I was not at all surprised and I would not have at all critiqued Djokovic's handling of the situation. Um, had he gone past the start of the qualies, I, I, I get that. There's still, that's still a couple of days in advance, about a week in advance of first ball. Now you get to the draw and there's 44 hours until first ball. And at this point, you know that things are not going to change fast enough as far as CDC guidelines go and immigration into the United States to get a work visa. You know things are not going to change fast enough for an unvaccinated Novak Djokovic without one of the exemptions that exists to get into the United States. For a, for a second there, I was reserving all judgment because I didn't know maybe he was in the country and we didn't even know about it. Nobody really knew. Then when he said, well, I was just waiting for confirmation that the guidelines weren't going to change. I got confirmation. Now I've pulled out. It, you know, the thing is, I felt like waiting until the last moment was appropriate and correct. But the last moment was definitely before 44 hours between before first ball, which is when the draw was made. And the precedent and the reason I say that is because when these guidelines are put in place, they are never effective immediately. You can look at any mask mandate that has policy that has been updated by the CDC, whether it is that everyone needs to mask indoors, whether it is that people no longer need to mask outdoors, whatever it is. Or if you look at travel guidelines, whether it be imposing the original travel ban, taking away the travel ban, allowing people to enter the U.S. when vaccinated. All of these things, they are never effective immediately. There is always plenty of advance notice, which makes sense because you you need to give people, when travel guidelines change, you need to give travelers advance notice. You need to give, you, you don't make something like that effective immediately. Um, otherwise, the, the rollout can be very, very messy. 44 hours before first ball we're talking, I, I felt like Novak should have pulled out before the draw, and it would have been easy. Now, I'm also not pearl clutching. It's not that big a deal. It's not It's not the, the most horrible thing ever, okay? It's just the draw. It's okay. He only, you know, he took, he made someone play qualifiers who didn't need to. They would have been a direct entry um, had Novak pulled out earlier. Um, and then he didn't allow one player to play qualifiers. The world is not ending there. However, it just seemed like a completely unavoidable thing. Oh, and the and the draw isn't balanced because there's no top seed in Rublev's section. None of these things are the end of the world. It's fine. Just to me, completely avoidable and unnecessary because you know that 44 hours, whatever, and, and you might disagree with me, to me, there's just no chance. There's no chance that 44 hours, um, and really less because you need time to travel, uh, that that something is going to change that quickly that's going to allow unvaccinated people to enter the United States, considering these guidelines are never changed effective immediately. They, they just aren't. 
Uh, it's not how it works. And then, you know, he withdrew less than 24 hours after the making of the draw. So it was kind of, there was that one point where it would have been meaningful and it would have actually helped everybody if Djokovic just withdrew a little bit before when he did. Not the end of the world at all, um, but I I have to critique, you know, when, when something, when I'm looking at this, I'm not going to say that, that I agree with it, that I'm going to, I just, I don't agree with it. And I'm sorry um, to anyone who is offended by that, but it's just, um, it's just how it is. And I've taken a lot of flack on social media because it's, uh, it's always a very unpleasant experience criticizing Federer, Nadal or Djokovic. It's just, it's just not. Um, and, and it is what it is. It's just how it is. <laughs> you know, my fairness and objectivity will be put into question in, in these cases. And fairness and objectivity does not mean that I'm going to land on the same side every time. Right? I think Novak fans have appreciated that I have sometimes defended him when the vast majority of voices in tennis media are attacking or criticizing, critiquing, okay? I think they've appreciated that. In this case, I, I look at it and I fall on the side of critique. And any any journalist who, or, and I, I actually don't like that word journalist. I don't think I actually do that much journalism. Uh, sometimes I do, but usually I'm not. Usually I'm a c pundit, commentator, opinionist, whatever. Uh, any anyone who is actually playing things straight and calling balls and strikes and not picking sides, they they should go both ways with people and with issues. So that's that. All right, we're getting to the point where I'm going to start getting through these a little bit faster. Uh, from Afola, hey Gil, two questions regarding Rafa, regarding his team. What changes slash impact do you think Mark Lopez has brought to Rafa's game so far? Really don't know on that question. No idea. They're just, there's not enough access on these coach-player relationships. Just not enough access to know these things. If I were, were able to, to watch maybe a ton of practice, I could maybe try to get a feel. But you know what? When you are at Rafa's level and Rafa has a coach like Carlos Moya who has clearly been kind of in charge of things, Mark Lopez is likely around uh, for, you know, not to come in and make any drastic technical changes. But they are really close friends. I'm sure Rafa wants him around. I'm sure they are going to train together a ton in terms of, you know, Mark Lopez just retired, right? He's going to be able to to train with Rafa um, maybe better, maybe a little bit better than Carlos Moya can. Um, so maybe that's a factor, maybe not. But at the end of the day, there's just not enough access uh, for me to answer that. Regarding his foot injury, in Rafa's uh, announcement in August 21st, he stated that it had been bothering him for the last year and had hampered his ability to train and compete the way that he would have liked. I might be wrong, but doesn't that mean the foot had becoming a hampering problem even during his run at Roland Garros in 2020, which was held in October of that of that year? Thanks as always. Thank you. Um, here's my thing on Roland Garros. I've gotten this question before. All I can say about Nadal in that Roland Garros final is that he played, or sorry, semifinal, is that he played exceptionally well for three sets. I can't know exactly how his foot was in that match. Has he always included Roland Garros when describing the time frame in which his foot was bothering him? Yes. All I can say is Nadal played very well in that match. The only time where I am going to really lean on, on injury as something that almost puts like an asterisk on a result is if a player is clearly not right and not playing the tennis that they have the their, the ability to play. Now, maybe in the fourth set it flared up because in the fourth set, Nadal did not have the physicality uh, and, and he was really shot. Uh, he didn't have much in the fourth set. But for three sets, he played exceptionally well and Djokovic found himself up two sets to one despite Nadal's 
level, which was high. So in that respect, you just can't take anything away from Novak. From John, thoughts on Emil Rusevori and what he can achieve in his career. I don't know if I'm ready for like an Emil Rusevori career prediction, but I will tell you that he is the the talent or the cleanliness of his ball striking and his power and his evenness off of both wings. It's going to make him a top 30 player almost by default. He'll He'll be there. And now it's a question of, what does his serve look like? How does his serve develop? It doesn't help him out much at this stage. doesn't get enough free points. How will his athleticism develop? It's pretty average at the moment. Um, and then maybe what can some... Can he add some wrinkles in his game variety-wise? But that's less important to me. It's more about the serve and the athleticism. Flynn, do you think Sinner has a chance of winning a Grand Slam? You know, before I continue, I love that the Rusevori and Sinner questions are back-to-back. Because Sinner is just uh, far... This phrase is overused. Sinner is Rusevori on steroids. They're very similar, is all I have to say. Um, I know he's made the top 10 at a young age, which is great, but I feel like his game is quite one-dimensional and his results against the top players of the game haven't been much to shout about, uh, shout home about yet. It also feels like the hype around him has died out considerably for Alcaraz. Yeah, it has a bit. Hold on. Got a water here. You make a couple of good points. Um, let me quickly pull up his record against top 10 competition. And then maybe I, I'd like to know his record against top five competition as well. Because it does feel like despite Sinner's results being great, he hasn't been a giant killer by by any means. So I'm going to pull it up right now. Um, career versus the top 10. He's 6-13. and 13. And you know what? His wins actually, a lot of them have come earlier in his career. Um, so in 2019, it was actually, no, it was 2020. So in 2020, one, two, three of the six, uh, top 10 wins. So it's been, you know, I beat Hercotch. He has a win over Hercotch. He has a win over Rude. He has a win over Rublev. Those are the recent ones. And then you have to go back to 2020, the match where he beat Zverev. That's his best win. And then he beat Tsitsipas in Rome. That's a great win, right? But that's, uh, yeah, so Clay Court 2020, he had a couple of great wins. But you're right, it's it's been a while, and the record is 6-13 and 13 against top 10. Now let me check top 5, he's 0-10. 0-10 in his career against top 5 competition. So yeah, uh, that, that um, is definitely a thing that you've identified. It's hard for me, though, to be pessimistic about Sinner because of the trajectory and the trajectory of skill development gives me hope that these things that are not great about his game, his first serve, his defense, his net play, something tells me that two, three years down the road, given the way he's shown a penchant to improve and get better, that these things could just get better. So that's why it's very hard for me to be pessimistic about Sinner. Until he starts to flatline, until he starts to stop improving at the rate that he has been, until then I just cannot be pessimistic. Love will survive. Who is a better serve and who is a better returner currently between Sinner and Alcaraz? Um... Man, Alcaraz is a better returner because he's more he's a more athletic returner. He's a more aggressive returner as well. Sinner does return the second serve probably equally as well as Alcaraz, if not better. But I see Alcaraz, and I think first serve returns are more... I don't want to say... Yeah, I'll just say it. Should I say more important? <laughs> no, I'm not going to say it. It's not more important. It's a better representation of how good a returner you are is how well you return the first serve in my opinion. So yeah, I, and I think I think Alcaraz returns a little bit better. Serve I would say 
I would say center by a little bit. They Alcaraz hits his serve a little bit bigger, but I think center is hitting his spots and serving at a better first serve percentage on a more consistent basis. So I think Sinner's serving a little bit better. I'd be curious to dig into the numbers there. Um, Karthik, what are the ways to contribute to tennis? I want to work for the game at some point in the future and to be close to the game. Could you please help with sharing information on roles or career options, part-time or full-time in tennis for a non-playing passionate tennis fan? I'm currently working in IT as a developer programmer. I know that I know that tennis.com or tennis channel, technically, it's kind of the same umbrella, is hiring someone to do their social media at the moment. In general, I think the internet is probably where you have an opportunity as someone with an unconventional background to try to break through and and do something interesting and do something different to establish yourself and to build your name um, in tennis. It's it's hard for me. I'm trying to give the best answer that I can here. I guess if you are a, a programmer or a developer, just try to think of what you would like as a tennis fan to exist that doesn't exist and see if your skills can create that. That's kind of my vague answer to that. From Brandon, uh, thoughts on the so-called WTA inconsistency and the amount of one slam wonders it has. I personally think it's exciting. I think it can be exciting for the more diehard fan. I think for casual viewership, for mainstream penetration... It's very important that stars are built. Very important. So if you are following the game on a week-to-week basis, it's like, holy crap, Krejcikova, how about that? But for a lot of others, you know, there's a segment of the population who did not watch the Roland Garros final because it was Krejcikova, Pavlichenkova, and... They would have been watching if it were Osaka versus... See, the WTA has some work to do on on the star building. It's coming. Like, I'm, you know, I'm confident that it's coming. But, I mean, the question is, like, who is... Besides the Williams sisters who who haven't been, I'm, I'm literally going to just pull up the, the rankings for a second because I want to make sure that I'm not completely forgetting anyone. Um, I guess like who's the biggest draw after Osaka? Like, is it Ash Barty considering, I would say her tame profile outside of Australia? I don't know. Sabalenka, Sviantek, Kontivate, Sakari, Bedosa, Pliskova, Muguruza. Jabir, Danielle Collins, Ostapenko. It's hard to think like what would what's a realistic Roland Garros final that is going to that that is going to include stars, mainstream sporting stars. Because you know, the potential, the star potential is massive. Raducanu could be huge. Leila Fernandez could be huge. Coco Goff could be huge. Um I mean, there's plenty there, but they're not really the present. The present right now, I mean, none of them are huge draws um, in the mainstream. So while the whole One Slam Wonder thing has been totally fine and compelling for a lot of tennis fans, financially, I think you have to just admit, I mean, Andrescu had tons of potential as a star if, if she was consistent, right, for example. Uh, what are What are more One Slam Wonders... I don't even really like that term. What are more players who have won one slam that had potential to be bigger stars? I think Sloane Stevens, if she was a consistent elite player, could have been um, could have been a very big deal or could be a bigger deal than than she is. Ostapenko, honestly, with <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. 
Ostapenko being how she is, it would have been interesting to see if she was like a consistent top five player. Uh, how would her reputation have have kind of developed? I don't know. From Chaz, you mentioned Medvedev seemed to be a bad matchup for Alcaraz. Medvedev's defense will force Alcaraz to play a tight match to have a chance, but I do believe Carlos's forehand is strong enough to keep Medvedev from cheating in on court position, and then the forehand drop shot gives him a strong tool to fight the comfortable Medvedev def defense position in the matchup. I believe the Alcaraz return is strong enough to place to play some off of Medvedev's serve too, though granted Medvedev does seem ahead in the return battle. At this point, I'd still pick Medvedev, but it's close in my eyes. Would be curious to hear your analysis on those two further. You make an excellent point, points that I certainly would have been would have been keen to make um, as well, thinking about that matchup, which is that you do love Alcaraz's ability to execute the drop shot consistently to attack Medvedev's court position. You love that. The reason why I said it was a bad matchup potentially for Al for Alcaraz is because I believe um, Medvedev in, is in his comfort zone against any player who he feels like he can trade with with superior consistency. And at this stage in Alcaraz's career, the one thing that he is learning is how to limit the mistakes and the misses from neutral positions. And to me, that is just Medvedev's, again, comfort zone, his sweet spot. It is opponents that ask him to reach into other bags of tricks that concern me more with Medvedev. Opponents like a Nadal, um, who he knows, you know, especially when Medvedev's legs are going on him, like they did in Australia, Medvedev knows he's not going to be able to trade into misses for Nadal. He's instead going to need to do a lot of creating on his own terms in order to make headway. And I just think Alcaraz is a matchup where Medvedev is going to be able to play his favorite brand of tennis. And realistically, there's a path to winning the match just doing that. So that is why I said that Medvedev um, seemed like a bad matchup for Alcaraz. However, again, with Alcaraz's speed and, you know, if if Carlos is able to play a very patient and clean match, I could see him being a huge problem for Medvedev. So I um, let me just put it this way. I'm... I, I agree with the comment that this is not some sort of easy pick and that there's plenty of arguments for Alcaraz um, in favor of him. Here's just another comment. It's the same thing. I'll read it, but I probably won't answer. Uh, you said Medvedev wasn't a good matchup for Alcaraz, so you expected him to lose. What about the matchup concerns you? Uh, what does he need to do to take on Medi and win? The surface is super slow, and Medvedev hasn't done well in Indian Wells. I thought Alcaraz would have a good chance. In general, I will say that, yes, these conditions are ideal for for Alcaraz in this matchup. Certainly, they, um, th they're good for Alcaraz. From SJ, I've noticed in certain matchups, great defenders like Nadal and Djokovic tend to be in the right place at the right time very, very often. Do you think they have a read on certain opponents? I remember watching the Wimbledon 2019 final and being shocked by how often Djokovic was guessing right during the rallies against Federer. Although, ironically, he seems to have little read against Federer's serve. And Nadal seems to always guess right against Medvedev, which just makes his defense and speed look incredible against him. Do you think reading, do you think it's reading or just anticipation or even just analyzing patterns? It's a combination of a couple things. Anticipation is massive. It is huge. It is a underlooked factor. In the case of Nadal Medvedev, I'd be willing to bet usually Nadal is guessing to his backhand side because Medvedev seems to approach that direction like every time. Medvedev needs to switch that up. I don't know if he's afraid of Nadal's forehand pass. I think he is because it's just, it's always to the backhand and it, it's not, it does not pay dividends. Uh, at least that was the case in Acapulco and at uh, the Australian Open. 
there's a couple things. I mean, it's it's knowing your opponent's patterns, but then there's also universal patterns, and then there's also technical body language. So there are you know footwork and hips kind of stuff, and and that I think is usually less of a factor, but could be a factor. Then there is the idea that like if I hit a strong ball and I have a player like Roberto Bautista Agut in a defensive position, I sure as heck know it's going cross court. I just, I know that. And I used Agut as just someone who has just a very predictable uh, pattern in, in his shot selection, right? Um, against... Like against Fanini, I might not be quite as sure. So it's patterns, but it's also things like, or or I leave a ball short and someone really likes to hit their down the line approach. Well, it's not only that they like to hit down the line, it's I just, I feel my ball is short. I feel my ball is attackable. So I think they're going to change direction here and, and you lean. But it's pretty innate. I, the players, they don't think about that. They don't calculate that in their mind. It's just you get a feel for it and you get a read for it. But it's definitely uh, something to watch for because, yeah, these players are amazing at just leaning the right direction and reading their opponents. We have seen a lot of coaching changes. We have seen a lot of coaching changes or collaborations of late. Off the top of my head, Tsitsipas, Sinner, Murray, and Novak have all mixed up some of their team. Which one do you like the most and will cause the most change? And which do you question the most? Feel free to mention others that I forgot. Thank you and keep up the good work. Thank you. That was from Apex of the World. I don't... I, I'm I'm cool with all of them. My most impressed... The one that I'm most impressed with is definitely Passes because I know how difficult it is when you're dealing with a family matter or a family member to have those hard conversations and make those decisions for yourself. So it's the Tsitsipas change that I think is the most important and the most impactful. Uh, Sinner, we'll see how it goes. I don't have much on that. And Murray Lendl, I know there's comments on that later. Novak, I don't really think that was up to Novak, but my take on Djokovic's thing is that as long as Ivanisevic is willing to take on a heavier load then it really should be much of the same in the world of Novak Djokovic. And I know, you know, not having Marion there, I mean, yes, there's definitely a change and an adjustment, but Novak was already going half the calendar without Marion Vida and, you know, with Goran. From Arvind, how do you rate Jack Draper, Musetti, and Korda? Your thoughts on their long-term future prospects and potential? Uh, too early for me to tell with Draper, and there's a comment on him later on, so I'll save it. Uh, Musetti and Corda, I see both of them as players with clear top 10 potential, but I do not predict at this point that either of them will reach like the tier one regularly, regular contendership for the biggest titles in the world and slams. I don't. At this moment, I'm not predicting that. And then that could change. But for Musetti, I have questions about just um, how how there are not there are not enough strengths there. There are not enough things that he does exceptionally great. From the serve to the forehand to the movement, I don't see enough fantastic A-plus attributes. I see a lot of things he does super well, and then I see his backhand as such a special, incredible shot, but it's not enough to me. You know, you cannot build your career, ask Richard Gazquet, you cannot build an elite career off of having a great backhand when the other pieces are just going to be good but not amazing. And I, I see him actually very much similar to Gazquet, who... who had a great career, obviously. Musetti's down-the-line backhand, the timing on it is the best I've ever seen. And that that includes Roger. But that's not going to carry him to the heights alone that 
um, you would think it might, <laughs> if if that makes sense. So so he's going to need a little bit more skill building, in my opinion, weapon building more specifically. And I don't. I'm not saying that weapon needs to be a power weapon. You know that could be that could be something else like defense, right? But he's going to need a little more to his game. Uh, it reminds me also a little bit of Dimitrov. In the sense, right, like what does Grigor do incredibly, exceptionally well? Movement, great athlete, pure game, awesome, awesome player. Just does so many things well. And But what is there that is amazing? Not quite enough. Korda, Korda needs to cut down on the unforced errors on his forehand right now. He's not an elite mover. He's actually, I don't think he's really an above average mover. I think he's an average mover. He can be great as an average mover. He really can. He can be great. But he's going to need to serve bigger. Because now if you're looking at an average mover as a top 10 player, you're going to need to be an offensive juggernaut. Korda has the talent to be an offensive juggernaut. Great volleys, great ground strokes, incredible two-hander, lots of easy power. Really comfortable in the transition game. You got to play a lot of offense, though. If you're going to play a lot of offense, you better serve well. Got to serve well. So he's got to beef up his serve. And I'll get more uh, to Draper more. From Nathaniel, you have had some reservations regarding electronic line calling when it started. Uh, when it started being used after the pandemic break. Now it's been a year plus and it's the norm to no longer have lines people. What do you think about it now? I personally love it. It just works. No unnecessary drama. I, uh, I There's some complaints I have. In general, I think it's good. I have some complaints and I have concerns. My biggest, one of my bigger complaints is it needs to be clear what the call is right away. We used to have a visual cue of the lines person putting their arm up, signaling that it was out. And now, I mean, especially at so many of these tournaments, especially when the crowd is loud, you don't know if it's in or out because it's not loud enough and the crowd drowns it out. And there are just issues with that. And and that actually can, can ruin a, a moment, can ruin a big moment. And that's just very bad for the viewing experience if you don't immediately know if the ball is in or out. I also don't know how people are becoming chair umpires. That is the path to becoming a chair umpire. You are first a lines judge. How are... How are officials making that transition? And how are you picking the best people for the job to become chair umpires if you are eliminating lines people? Do I miss the human error? I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It's tough for me. I don't have a strong opinion, honestly, on if it's better or worse. I don't, so... That's something that, you know, maybe, I don't know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll put a question on the community tab about that and then we can see how, how you guys all feel. Matt Gunner, I know people talk of curtailing the season, but I am keen to see an extended grass court season with Wimbledon pushed back. Is this even possible if it meant the U.S. Open played in October? You would not want the U.S. Open played in October because it would be too cold. So that would be terrible. However... I would like to see a slight adjustment in the calendar. I would like to see a Masters 1000 on grass. I would like, and I think most fans would like that. I'd like to see Hamburg become a Masters 1000 tournament on grass. It used to be a grass court event. Um, or sorry, it used to be a Masters 1000 event. And they have everything necessary that it would take to put grass courts there. And right now it is buried. It's a clay court event after Wimbledon. It's totally buried. Nobody cares about it. <laughs> and that's a shame. And Germany should get a Masters. And Germany should get a grass court Masters in Hamburg. And that should be a lead up to Wimbledon. I don't know what the challenge is. There might be various challenges to that. But that is how I would workshop it. From Nathan, which top players aside from Rafa do you think benefit the most from the weather conditions slash how the courts at Indian Wells play and why? Pretty much the players who like clay. 
is my simple answer. Tsitsipas, rude, great kick serves. Anyone you talk to is going to tell you that a great kick serve is tough to deal with on this court. Um, that would that would benefit Berrettini as well. Berrettini's got a great one, and obviously likes you know we we've seen his game benefit from the clay at times. I think the I mean I think the conditions are really best for Dominic Team, who obviously had to uh, pull out and isn't back yet. This one from Lucas Sim. Please, can you talk about Jack Draper if you are aware of the tennis he's been playing? He has recently turned 20, has won three challenger titles in 2022, youngest Brit ever to do this, has moved inside the top 150 from 265 at the start of the year, and is third in the race to Milan behind some fairly good players in Alcaraz and Sinner. It is exciting to have a young British player come through like this, as he was never really discussed as much of a prodigy. I believe it's a matter of time before he begins playing properly on the main tour. How far do you think Jack can go? couple of things here. First of all, whenever someone is tearing up the Challenger Tour, it's, it's something that everybody should respect and take notice of. And it means you have serious, serious abilities. So winning three challenger titles already, it is no joke. That is no joke. I, I, I've only watched Jack Draper play one match in my life, and it was against Djokovic at Wimbledon. And I went back um, just to refresh myself on some thoughts. And I was super impressed with how he handled the moment. It was the first match at Wimbledon 2021. First match. Center court. Novak Djokovic. British kid. 19 at the time. I mean, that's that's a lot to deal with. And I thought he was confident. I thought he had some swag to him. And I really liked how he hit off of both wings from central locations on the court when he wasn't on the move. I, I thought his productiveness started to deteriorate when he was on the run, especially on the forehand side, and he's a lefty. And then I thought for his height and being a lefty, he should serve bigger. And that's most young players should serve bigger and get better at serving. Uh, but he's like 6'5", six, 6'6", six, six, maybe 6'4". Six, I don't know if I'm giving him too much. But I, I thought that for his size and good athletic build, also he's got some meat on him, I thought he should have been serving bigger at that point. So I haven't seen him this year. I will keep an eye on him. But those were my impressions of him um, last time I watched him play. And and a lefty with a, a nice drive backhand and one with a big serve, that's kind of rare. I don't think we've seen much of that. We've seen a lot of, like, remind me of Gilles Mueller and Feliciano Lopez. And for some reason, most of, like, the really good serving lefties haven't had great backhands. And I remember I liked Draper's backhand in that match. From Wild, Nick Kiro says he feels fresher and healthier. Can he actually make a run at Indian Wells? Well, look, 96-player draw means, you know, 11-day event for the men. That means uh, best of three sets, days off. I made Kyrgios a dark horse because this is one of the least physical tournaments that there is. This in Miami. Even though the surface is extremely physical. And he just seems very, again, happy at the moment, which is good. I think that just helps him on the court. It helps everybody on the court, let's be real. And... Look, he attributes it to his girlfriend. So, I don't know, like, I hope that that means it is a sustainable state of being. Usually, like, I don't know. I'm not a psychologist. I'm going to stop here. I, I hope he continues to be happy. But I'm just, I'm going to say, he seems like he's in a really good place. I do think that, despite the conditions being pretty slow, I think he can work through them, serve through them, so to speak. And... He's get he's got Del Bonus in the next round. I mean, I I do think he should win that. Another one about Kyrgios from Adrian. Since you have Kyrgios as a dark horse, what are the strengths and weaknesses of a fully fit, mentally engaged Kyrgios? Is he talented and technically sound enough to have won multiple slams in his career if he would just get his act together with his concentration and his fitness? I do think he is technically sound enough. Yes, I do. What are the technical weaknesses in his game? It's his return. I think his forehand return technique is really, really bad. And, and it hurts him. 
and I think he doesn't even have a very good first serve return on um, the backhand side as well. I don't think he defends his backhand very well, and I don't think he trains it from a technical perspective. It looks like he has not really worked on the open stance, topspin backhand defense. I just don't really see that from him. And and maybe it's maybe it's because of how he produces his backhand that he doesn't have that. Um but look, technically yes, I think he is right up there. But let's be real. You're talking about concentration, mental and fitness. You're not even saying like Nick is almost there. It's just the mental side. Or Nick is almost there. It's just the physical side. I mean, you've had issues with Kyrgios mentally and physically. That's a lot. Is the technical side good enough to have won slams? I think so. I think definitely. From Rob. Gil, who would win it in a tennis match between you and Steven from the slice? Steven's got a one-hander, right? That's no good against me. That's no good. I'm all about that Spanish invertido, inside-out forehands to Steven's backhand over and over and over again, over and over and over again, and then I'll rip it inside in. It's no good that he's got a one-handed backhand. I don't lose to one-handed backhands. Um, no, in, in all seriousness, I'd love to play him. Um, I, I'll, take, I'll take myself. I think I'd win. I haven't scouted him very close. I know, I know, and I have, I have seen him hit some balls, but I haven't scouted him very close. Uh, from VTech, what do you think about Andy Murray's hire of Ivan Lendl? I feel like Murray knows he doesn't have many seasons left and thinks he hasn't achieved enough during his comeback and hasn't been nearly as successful as the big three after their comebacks. So I see hiring Lendl as somewhat as a somewhat desperate attempt to try everything possible while he's still not too old. Still a good move for Murray, even if it doesn't work out. He can call it a career free from that nagging feeling of missed opportunities. I I love the move. I and I love the plan. So what I think Lendl has the chops, the confidence, the pedigree, the bravado to make some radical changes with Andy. And I don't think Andy would let a lot of people embark on something like that. And and maybe Yvonne does not make radical changes because he chooses not to. But I know that I know that they're going to put some work in one-on-one and and Murray's going to leave the tour during clay court season to travel to Orlando to work one-on-one with Yvonne. Um and to put training blocks in where they are going to have a chance to kind of go, okay, square one, not have to worry about a tournament next week or anything like that, and to build some some new stuff from the ground up and to trade some ideas. And I, I mean, I think there's loads of potential in that. So uh, I think that's a, a great thing for Andy Murray. A couple of more, couple more here from New Day. If Nadal continues his early season dominance on hard court. Will there be any reckoning come Roland Garros as far as his body is concerned? Would it matter to him if it turns out he sacrificed a French Open title for his unprecedented hardcourt success? I don't think he is going to let that happen because I think he'll pull out of Miami, <laughs> honestly. Let's see. I'm, I'm curious, but he might have some hard decisions to make about whether or not to play Miami. Because he, I'm sure he'll want to get some rest in before clay season. Who knows? He might even have to make some hard decisions about, I don't know if it would be Monte Carlo or Barcelona. I'm not sure which one means more to him. Uh, Madrid is, now Monte Carlo, keep in mind, is the only non-mandatory Masters 1000. I'm not sure why. Nobody's ever explained that to me. But, you don't get actually punished from a rankings standpoint for uh, not playing. So maybe Monte Carlo on the chopping block, maybe Barcelona on the chopping block if need be. But I think Nadal is going to take a very conservative approach. And I think Miami is a big question mark at this at this point in time. Do I think he would ch- like trade a Roland Garros title for hardcourt dominance? 
I think he would trade it for an Australian Open title, but certainly not Acapulco or Indian Wells. I mean, I think it's very simple when it comes to what the priorities are, which is the majors, and that is it. That right there was the last question. Um, thank you all for your incredible comments. And um, if you enjoyed, remember that you can become a member of the channel for $2 a month. Buy me half a coffee every month, and uh, that's a big help to, uh, to ensure the future sustainability of the YouTube channel. And I will leave it at that. Hope you enjoyed. Don't forget to subscribe, and I'll see you next time.